2: If you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of every episode of the podcast. Next up, we've got a rundown of this year's Fantastic Fest Film Festival that doubles as a preview of some of the best genre movies coming out over the rest of 2022 and beyond. You can find bonuses at patreon.com slash Show. That's patreon.com slash Show.
1: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
2: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here with
1: Scott Tobias
2: and Genevieve Kosky. Our absent co-host Keith Phipps is out conducting an affair of the heart, but we really can't get into that because we're not supposed to know about it. This week, we're mooning over exactly that kind of secret affair of the heart with two very different films about emotional affairs that threaten to become more physical affairs. One largely sets its doomed romance in a British train station and its refreshment room where two married people have careful conversations in the public eye the other more often sets its romance in private spaces, though they're often private spaces where memories of murder overshadow any other feeling. With that in mind, before we get into this week's pairing, I'm going to ask you both a dangerous question. If you were going to have a quiet but passionate emotional affair with someone you really couldn't allow
0: yourself to be with, what unlikely romantic spot do you think would be a really good staging point for your angst and yearning? You are going to get me in trouble, Tasha. My husband listens to this podcast and he watched these movies with me. So he is already on high alert
1: (laughs) after (laughs) after this.
0: So if you say like
2: a carnival would be like the ideal, he's just he's going to have an eagle eye on you next time you're you're at Wrangling Brothers.
0: Well, yes. So that's why I am choosing for my answer, the library. (laughs) uh, which which yes is my husband's place of work but um, the the type of library I'm imagining isn't the the one the kind that he works in I'm thinking more like your classic sort of reading room big open reading room situation you know like furtive glances across but you can't talk you know maybe passing a note back and forth in a book you know and then there's lots of little quiet corners you could go off to but I feel like the initial meet has to happen in a big beautiful airy reading room situation
2: i'm very much into this i I can already see the your emirata says something like genevieve i love you so much and then the this like librarian with like big glasses says shh
0: yeah yeah and and that librarian is my husband
1: can you like check to see like who took a certain book out Last yeah. And maybe it's that person, you know, maybe you all yeah. share. It's just like a sort of whispers
0: taste. of the
2: heart situation where people are looking at <laughs> library cards and uh, just seeing the same two names over and over. And eventually the, the big passionate moment comes when one of you asks the other, if
1: you can get a key to the stacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm into this i'm ready to script this scott what about the, you the, the, the work the working title is Shh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also hearing uh mary the librarian from music man like playing right now
1: i'm having trouble with this question because i i'm having trouble kind of like really narrowing down to a specific location but this is my favorite sub 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 genre of movie basically the, the kind of stories of unrequited love affairs that never come to pass like that's that's my that's my that's the thing i like the most so the the requirements for me the things i like i kind i like a, a nocturnal setting i like something that's set in an urban environment preferably you know in a past uh, in the past at least far enough to where uh, society is uh you know asserting a certain amount of discouraging pressure on uh the the parties involved so that's that's kind of the general area I want. So as far as you know, I think New York is kind of the place for me. That's one of the your more romantic cities, so I would say say I would say New York. But what if I combine all those things? Yeah, you know, I'm almost kind of getting into the Age of Innocence. <laughs> <High> society, <laughs> New York high society. Etc. But like that, that's kind of where where I'm at. I want I want those sorts of p- parameters on my uh, on my tragic love story.
2: All right, I'm I'm glad that you pushed this in a Scorsese direction because I was going much more in a Woody Allen direction. I I definitely like your versions better. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly more hoop skirts. Well, that's funny because I would lean in the exact opposite direction. My my first thought was uh, the kind of science fiction movie that usually features everybody has to take pills to sublimate their passions and then two people figure out that they actually like having emotions. So I'm thinking like a, a sterile panopticon kind of setting where you're constantly being watched by whatever <laughs> powers that be and you have to figure out a way to kind of like code your your uh, your passionate secret love in a way that isn't going to show up too much on camera. So just like a, a very like creepy, overbearing THX eleven thirty eight kind of environment. Or prison. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought about that uh, and and the similarities between these environments in at, at prison. And then I just started thinking about, you know, the love that could not be in prison. And it just it all went to a very icky place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing the thing that you like about these futures is at least they're clean. You know, they may be oppressive, <laughs> fascistic, controlling of your emotions. Everything is forbidden. But at least everything is like really spiffy and, and well lit.
0: Nothing says romance like sterility. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want. A nice, sterile love
2: that can't happen. Well, now that we've indulged those fantasies a bit, uh, weird as they might be, we can get back to other people's fantasies about love that can never be. Genevieve... And now I'm, I'm having a passionate, forbidden yearning for you to tell us about this week's pairing.
0: Well, allow me to oblige. Park Chan-wook's early films like Old Boy and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance were violent, intense affairs full of abrupt bloodshed. With films like The Handmaiden, he looked at different kinds of affairs, less violent, but still physical and intimate. His quiet new thriller, Decision to Leave, is about an affair of the heart between two people who hide everything they're feeling from the world, but start to find a way to trust each other. Unfortunately, one of them is a married detective, and the other is the woman he's investigating for possibly murdering her husband. Park has said one of his major influences in laying out Decision to Leave's emotional affair was David Lean's 1945 melodrama Brief Encounter about two married people who meet by chance at a train station and fall for each other, then struggle in different ways with the ramifications of having an affair. Park isn't the first to be influenced by this classic piece of cinema, which spends more time with the consequences of pleasure and the fear of pursuing it than with the pleasure itself.
2: So on this episode, we'll talk about brief encounter and how two people not having sex can be far more dramatic and intimate than if they'd tumbled into bed together. And next week, we'll bring in Decision to Leave, which starts with that idea, then adds a police procedural and a murder mystery on top of the template. As a side note, you may notice we've been running ads for Decision to Leave on the Podcast, but that ad agreement happened entirely separately from our decision to discuss the film, which I personally pushed for as a huge Park Chan-wook fan. You'll see what I'm talking about after this break.
0: I'm a happily married woman. Or rather, I was until a few weeks ago. This is my whole world. And it's enough. Or rather it was until a few weeks ago. Can I help you? Uh, Oh, no, please, it's only something in my eye. Try pulling your eyelid down as far as it'll go. And then blowing your nose. Please let me look, I happen to be a doctor. That's very kind of you. Oh, turn around the light, please. That's how it all began. Just through me getting a little piece of grit in my eye. There's a reason the will-they,
2: won't-they romance subplot has become one of television's favorite narratives. TV is often built on ongoing, protracted stories, and a TV season potentially has a lot of time to devote to couples getting closer under dramatic circumstances and slowly navigating how they feel about each other and what they want to do about it. But movie narratives tend to be a lot more compressed. And while rom-coms and rom-droms alike do throw a lot of barriers between would-be couples, it's generally a pretty good bet that a charismatic lead pair that's eyeing each other up in Act 1 is going to be somewhere in the spectrum between enjoying a first kiss and actually getting married by the end credits. There may be regrets and complications along the way or afterward. Love, sex, and marriage are all big complicators that drive big plots. But on the whole, you're far more likely to see people in movies following through with romance rather than considering romance and then backing away. That may be one of the bigger reasons David Lean's 1945 melodrama Brief Encounter has cast such a long shadow over romantic cinema, frequently turning up on best films of all time lists and in conversations with filmmakers talking about their inspirations. It's a movie about a physical affair that doesn't happen for many reasons, which leaves its participants more time and space to feel the weight of physical and emotional longing and to live dramatically and painfully in the space in between what-ifs. Celia Johnson stars as Laura, a middle-aged wife and mother of two elementary school-aged kids. Her husband Frank is a little on the boring side, but he's kind and caring, and they have a warm home life filled with easy laughter and well-worn camaraderie. They're clearly financially comfortable and living a privileged life, there are no big red flags in their relationship, no obvious signs of crisis. But then Laura meets a similarly middle-aged man, Dr. Alec Harvey, played by Trevor Howard, at the station where she catches the train to and from town during her weekly leisurely trips for shopping in the movies. Before long, he's joining her at the movies, then taking her out punting on a local pond, then telling her passionately that he loves her and wants to be with her. He fills up her mind and heart in spite of all of her reservations and worries about what's right and proper and what the people around them might notice or might say about them. When he tries to lure her away to a friend's borrowed flat, she demurs, then later goes. But they're interrupted before anything can happen, and she's humiliated and tells him they have to stop carrying on. We know from the start how their love story ends, because playwright Noel Coward, adapting one of his stage works, starts the story with that ending, as the two try to have one final quiet moment together at the train station before he leaves for what may be a permanent posting as a doctor in Africa. Their farewell is shanghaied by a notorious local gossip and busybody who barges in and takes over their table, guaranteeing that they never really get a chance at a proper final exchange. Coward and Lean show the devastating effects of that parting on Laura long before we understand what's happening in the scene and why. They front load the emotion at the beginning of the film, adding in the obvious sense of loss, regret, and despair before even telling us who these two people are or what they mean to each other. It's an unconventional structure for story, but it guarantees that viewers are lured in by the power of Laura and Alex's feelings well before we see the frivolous beginnings and light flirtations that led them there. We talked about David Lean on the podcast not so long ago, pairing his historical epic Lawrence of Arabia with Dune, Denis Villeneuve's futuristic version of the story about colonialism and desert power. Films like Lawrence and other big screen epics like The Bridge on the River Kwai or Dr. Zhivago wound up being what made Lean's reputation as a stager of spectacle. But this is a much smaller and more intimate version of Lean, one with much more in common with Douglas Sirk. There's no two-fisted adventure or war-torn battlefields here, just two people who can't have what they want, which winds up being as emotionally affecting as anything that happens on Lean's broad, bright, epic canvases. Would Brief Encounter have such a powerful reputation if Laura and Alec had found a way to go to bed together early on, and this was a story about two lovers pulled apart by circumstances rather than about something that never happened and probably never will? I'm betting it wouldn't, because that is a familiar story, and this is a comparatively rarer one. Laura regrets her love for Alec even as she's giving into it. It embarrasses her and causes her grief as much as it makes her happy. This isn't just an unconsummated love. It's a forbidden one, which makes it all the more alluring. But usually in movies, protagonists find ways to pick their forbidden fruit, even if that leads to dire consequences. Brief Encounter is more of a road-not-traveled story. And even if some of us have never fallen in love with a handsome stranger in a railway station and then lost him to Africa, we all have regrets. We all have roads we didn't go down, we all have loves that didn't happen. A lot of cinematic love stories are wish-fulfillment fantasies, but this one's a more relatable kind of story, one about a place where none of us choose to go, but where a lot of us have been anyway.
1: Oh, would God be how dare you! I couldn't resist it. I'll oh, trouble you to keep your hands to yourself. Oh, you're blushing.
0: Oh, you look wonderful when you're angry. Just like an avenging angel.
1: I'll give you avenging angel, coming in here, taking liberties. I thought after what you said last Monday, you wouldn't object to a friendly little slap. Have you mind about last Monday? I'm on duty now. Nice thing if Mr Saunders had happened to be looking through the window. Well, if Mr Saunders is in the habit of looking through windows, it's about time he saw something worth looking at. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Oh, it's high spirits. Don't be mad at me. High spirits, indeed. Take it tea and be quiet. It's all your fault, really. I don't know to what you're referring.
2: So, all of that is my theory on why Brief Encounter is such an enduring film. You know, something that that moves people, that that lures in filmmakers year after year after year. Do you buy that the fact that it doesn't happen is the reason it has such an impact? Is there is there more to it?
1: That's part of it. I mean, that's part of the power of it. This you know, this sort of micro genre is my favorite in all all of movies. Uh, stories of unrequited love. Those are the ones that always kind of get me. Movies like All That Heaven Allows and In the Mood for Love and The Age of Innocence and, but uh, Before Sunrise and Before Sunset. You know, all these movies which owe quite a bit to Brief Encounter. It's just an extraordinarily romantic idea, and the fact that it can't happen makes it all the more romantic because you just feel that the intensity, the intensity of the emotions, just sort of hover there, and and they can't, they have no real place to go it's just it's just very it's all it state remains in this place of being charged and being um, charged with lust but also kind of grief in a way and, and and longing and it just is a formula that makes for many many great movies uh, including this one which is which is an all-timer for me
2: although it's important to note here this isn't an unrequited love it's just an unconsummated love it's an unfulfilled love
1: but i think i think those movies are of a similar ilk
2: Oh, I mean, I agree with your example. It's just that, you know, unrequited love is a love that isn't returned. And these two people a- appear at least to love each other passionately. They-, they appear to requite each other's love thoroughly. They just can't act on it, which is a- just a much more specific thing, I think.
0: To, to be fair, uh, like Alec does put out there the possibility of them being together, of them running off. Like, there's no real like energy spent on gaming out how that would work. But she is the one who you know says that can't happen. In, you know, in the end, and that's like. The practical answer, you know, but there is sort of the I I think like the the unrequitedness comes in the denial of the big romantic, stupid gesture (laughs) here, but I think to you know keep this practical keep this discussion of romance really practical to answer your question Tosh I think another sort of part of this film that has made it so enduring I think is just like the mechanic of it like the train ha- the train station is such amazing like Mason scene for this kind of story you know and it Scott you brought up before sunset that's kind of another you know e- extrapolation of it like when you have this sort of fixed timetable that you're working on it like it turns everything into a stolen moment you you know, and there's a kind of a deadline on their time together every time they're together, you know, and it just it creates this overarching tension of they can't be together in the in the big picture. They can only be together in this one like tiny sliver of time. And I think that really heightens the core emotion of this story.
1: It also becomes about how specific spaces are safe or available for them to be themselves you know this refreshment room is such a vivid version of that even the movie theater or, or the restaurant where they go together with the terrible cellist i mean all of that uh, you know and, and you see that in, in a lot of these types of movies where they where there's just there's like a location where they can you know uh, that bridge where they were i think she talks about being on the feeling like she was on that bridge for a really long time because it was just it was like a place that was just out of view of anybody it was where they could be together and not have to look around and, and have be, be judged for it um uh, again very very powerful and those in those those places those specific places end up having so much meaning in, in of themselves you know and, and as you mentioned of course the trains trains are so romantic I mean another all-time favorite umbrellas of Cherbourg, you know that has that has you know one of the all-time great train sequences at the end of the first act you know where, where uh the dude is going off to to, to war and there she she sings jetem t'aime, jetem t'aime, and it's like you know I mean this is it's it's a, It trains are such a good good metaphor for separation and then also the passage of time you know that's something that brief encounter takes advantage of as well.
2: Yeah, I love the degree to which their affair kind of has to be carried on in public just because of because of the times, you know, because of the completely inappropriate idea of uh, a man and a woman who aren't married being together in anything like uh, privacy in that particular time, in that particular setting and that means they have to navigate all of these eyes all of these suspicions you know bored busybodies is one thing but there's also just you know all of the other people who are interacting in and around the the train comfort room which is its own little side melodrama that quite frankly The little side affair between uh, Mrs. Baggett and Albert is, uh, to me, I'm I'm honestly more interested in those two Mm -hmm. than I am in these, you know, kind of uh, rich patrician staid uh, people Mm -hmm. who spend just a lot of time (laughs) saying like I I love you, I love you, and then don't have a whole lot of language for the rest of it. Watching Myrtle and Albert fence in their like working class kind of way, where you know she's she's so proud. And she's so aware of her, just like the the things that give her her pride of place. And she kind of weaponizes the, them against him. But, you know, sometimes she needs him as well. And they have that little moment of, uh, you know, he chases off the kind of roughneck soldiers. And she's like, I'll see you later. And we, we know exactly what that means. There's just so much business around the two of them. And I, I love their story.
0: I mean, I wouldn't I would I wouldn't go so far as to say I, I like their story Better, but I think it is a really important counterpoint to Laura and Alex's story like like they're working in harmony you know like you already mentioned sort of the class difference between them but also like Mrs. Baggett and or Ms. Baggett and Albert. No it's, it's Albert. Mrs. I checked that
2: we we don't oh. I don't think we find out what her situation is there. Well I, she,
0: she has that little moment where she talks about her husband like leaving and dying right? Like, okay, she's a widow. Yeah. So she is in a position, they are in a position to kind of flirt more openly, you know, and and not have to sort of play the, uh, the patrician game that, that Laura and Alec do and having them be in the same space as that happens. I think it really just does create a lovely sort of harmonic play between their two relationships.
1: You know one of the things one of the things I love about this movie is that is that we have two characters who are not looking for this at all. <laughs> you know I mean you might you may say that you may I, we don't know necessarily anything about Alex's home life but Laura is, you know, contented and I think there's a, you know and I think we can see that you know Frank may not be the most exciting dynamic human being but he's he's certainly you know a very sweet Husband, It seems like a really seems like a good guy. And I just what I love about the movie is how the affair or the not affair or whatever it becomes uh, happens, how they just kind of fall into it, how it it starts with him, you know, removing this piece of dust from her eye and then them just kind of running into each other. And it just I mean, it is really a truly a one thing leads to another type of scenario and it's just it's just it's so plausible you know and, and, and they just find themselves all, all this all of a sudden getting excited about meeting getting excited about each other and and without without realizing it they get to this point like oh no <laughs> you know that i i love this person and i can't and now we're in trouble because like what do what do we even, what do we even do with that uh, these feelings what can we do with these feelings i i just think the progression of that is so beautifully written and so real
2: I think it's beautifully written and real, but uh, Scott, here's where you and I are going to get in trouble with each other. I, I can already see the train wreck coming. Okay, in. wait,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm going to put my mediator hat on. Okay, <laughs> go. <laughs> I, I,
2: I don't know about the they're not looking for it thing at all. I don't think she necessarily is. I think she's kind of settled into her life. But given that we never see Alex's wife, and when asked to describe her he doesn't he doesn't say anything complimentary he doesn't say anything personal he he gives a very vague physical description as you say we don't know anything about their home life it could be very unhappy this could be his his fifth affair this year he is to me a kind of a cipher in this movie and all we have to judge him on is his behavior which I'm going to say, frankly, by by today's standards in particular, feels pretty caddish to me. You know, he pushes her over and over and over, he's he's got like a pickup artist level uh, game going on here where he pushes her boundaries. She says no. And then he says, I'm going to do this anyway. He, like, I'm, I'm go- I've am I'm decided to, to not go to work today and join you at the movies. And she says, no, you can't. And he says, yes, I'm going to. And he does. When he first starts touching her, she says, no, you can't. And he does anyway. When the first time they kiss, she says, please don't. And he grabs her and does it anyway. He's constantly pushing past her boundaries and when she resists he he calls her names he, he tells her that she's cruel you know there's an awful lot here about his behavior that I don't care for and huh. I can believe that he loves her but I don't think it would be difficult at all if you wanted to be cynical about this movie to see him as potentially a serial adulterer who likes the look of her and starts grooming her and she falls for it because, you know, she's she's reached a stage in life where she's a little bored and having this like handsome, mysterious stranger pay court to her is exciting and engaging. And it's it's fascinating to me because I think this is maybe my fourth time seeing Brief Encounter. And every single time I forget that that's what it's like. Every single time. I I wrote something today about how Brief Encounter is like, you know, the tragic story of two lonely people in love who can't be together because they love their spouses. And then I rewatched the film this morning and was like, well, no, that's not really what it is at all, is it? she makes that decision. I don't know that he ever does. And he's the one that's constantly pushing for it to become physical. And when she shows up at that flat, she's so uncertain. She is so nervous about the decision she's trying to make. And he's like, hey, babe. And once again, kind of grabs her and tries to pull her toward the bedroom. I am not arguing that this is a great film. I'm not arguing even that it's a a satisfying and, and immersive and interesting romance but i'm really pretty side eye on alex's behavior in general and again i think it wouldn't take any misreading at all to see him as uh much more taking advantage of her loneliness than he is like falling into this this strange great love that just blindsided him out of nowhere
0: all right, i'm going i'm going to jump in while scott assembles his thoughts as i can, can see him doing and uh, i will i will agree that that is a cynical reading, as you say, you, you could take on the film. Like, I agree it's there. Where I would push back is in two places. One, I think a lot of what you're characterizing as, you know, sort of manipulative or aggressive behavior on his part is just kind of part of how romance was often portrayed in this era. And uh, more specifically to this film, I think that scene you mentioned in the flat or more accurately, what comes right afterwards when he's talking to the flats owner indicates to me that this is not something that he does with any sort of regularity or that he has put a lot of thought into pulling off like at that moment he seems caught out by his friend and he seems to feel guilty and bad about it and it doesn't really strike me as the behavior or reaction of someone who was you know a pickup artist as, as, as you put it again that reading is definitely there if you want to take it I don't personally want to take it though with with this
2: film. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's definitely more an optional uh, reading than a a mandatory one. But yeah, yeah, let's let's hear Scott's thoughts.
1: I mean, the thing is, you don't have the information with him that you have with her. She, you know, you have a a sense of what her domestic life is like. You don't know about his, though. They are in principle equal, or they are similar. You know, they are married with. You know, what does he have? One kid or two kids? They've got a similar situation going, and they're probably of of a similar class, etc So I I tend to think of them as is kind of on equal footing, and, and and I feel like the journey that they take is a journey they take together, and that the feelings they feel are similar. I mean, you don't want the characters to be the exactly the same people, and, and maybe there is a sense, uh, maybe there is a more of a willingness on his part to take a leap or to, or to try to figure out how to make it this happen, but. Yeah, but he also at the same time he also you know arranges for this. He, he finds a way out for them. You know, he takes a, he he takes that job in in Johannesburg. He's he he he's the one who leaves. He makes it possible um, for this thing to end. That's his decision. That's his him taking action. So uh, I don't know. I don't really. I guess I don't really go for the quite quite as uh, you know darker read of uh, on on Alec as 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 you do. I, I feel like. I don't feel like there's um, there are too many points in the film where I look at him to side eye, even though I guess maybe he is a little less cautious than she is. But I also think but I also think I really think they actually do kind of fall into this. I don't you know, it, it doesn't seem like he doesn't seem like an operator it just as something where it's just something that ha- happens. And, you know, and I don't think there's any arrangement for them to bump into each other. It's just a thing where it just, you know, circumstances are, are, are where they are. They 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 hit it off you know a casual friendship and, and and connection and kind of this this fun little Thursday thing that they that they do I mean it just becomes something more and and um you know maybe it speaks to a you know a boredom on the in, in both of their lives maybe they both have domestic lives that are contented but but they have this period this time away that's their own and and now they have each other within that space so I, I don't know I, I I tend to read it that way I don't really think about Alec as being you know, as dark, potentially as dark a figure as you. But at the same time, I, I can't really provide a huge amount of evidence to rebut what you're saying.
0: Well, I think it's also important that we get a very early conversation between them that basically shows us to what degree Alec is a romantic, uh, you know, like that, that story about why he became a doctor, you know, and just like wanting oh. to do good in the world. Like Like he is... So good. He's presented really early on as sort of this ro- romantic dreamer type and i think we can you know interpret a lot of his actions th- through that lens, and just real quick, I want I want to highlight uh, one of my favorite little details about Fred because because Alec also functions as sort of a, a counterpoint to Fred, who needs to be told what romance is so he can put it in the crossword puzzle, <laughs> which is is such a a, a slick little uh, you know characterization moment and kind of just a really neat encapsulation of what their marriage is you know like it's comfortable it fits in a box but mm-hmm. you know he can't recognize romance when two letters of it are right there in front of him <laughs> you know so i think that just really primes laura to be receptive to Alex's very sort of different romantic energy
2: Yeah, I don't mean to actually imply that I think Alec is, you know, a a Lothario who does this with with women, you know, three times a year. I I sort of said that, but I was exaggerating for a fact. Mostly what I was trying to get across there is we just know so little about him compared Mm -hmm. to what we know about her. Like, we literally hear her thoughts. We literally have her telling us like the details of her day and and every little thing that she goes through emotionally and comparatively what we have from him we know that he's anxious that he needs a lot of reassurance which is another thing that made me a little uncomfortable where he just says over and over and over Mm -hmm. like you're feeling this too and to the exact same degree that I am right And (laughs) every time he said that I thought well how the hell would she know You know, talk more about what you're feeling, and and tell her less that she's feeling exactly what he's feeling. But why do you think the story's told this way? You know, this this is a pretty short movie. It's just about ninety minutes long. There certainly was space for more scenes that give us any kind of
1: (laughs) no (laughs) it's It's from her it's from her perspective there's no what you break that perspective it'd be terrible you know a very bad decision don't do it why would it it be terrible why why is she's the the one who's telling she's the one who's telling the story she's literally telling us a story so why do we have that one
2: scene where she's not present why why do we stick with his point of view yeah
1: we do we are fine but i mean we have that scene but i just think like no i don't want I don't need to know every piece of information about these characters. I don't, I, I, it's fine that we, we know a lot about her and not as much about him. It's, it's fine. It is fine that we can kind of like, you know, speculate or, or kind of like, you know, figure, try to explore whatever the gray area is about, about Alec and his personality and his motivations and his potential, you know, uh, uh, skirt chasing ways or whatever like he you know we can it's fine that we can play around in that area i don't i I don't want to know that i don't want to know everything (laughs) and i definitely don't want to i I I definitely cherish the economy of this movie that it is under 90 minutes long that it does tell the story the way it does that it has her narration and the, the role that plays which is very interesting because she's telling it to her husband but not really telling it to her husband that we start with the end which is and we get that unbelievable introduction of the of the two of them like that like they're like in the background i just love that what a great way to introduce your two lead characters is just in the background of a scene that we that will of course have great emotional import when we when later on when they're right in the foreground you know i, I just love that stuff and so i, I don't want to like you know i i, I don't want to know more <laughs> I I don't. Yeah, I mean, I I understand
2: that impulse. Like, less is more and all that stuff. But I remain just kind of, like, baffled and fascinated by the sequence with Alec and his friend. Because it's really the only time we see what he's like when Laura isn't there. And what he's like is a little petulant, you know? And maybe even more a mystery than when we're seeing him through her eyes. The friend is kind of, like, leery and lugubrious at him for a minute, like, more or less implying, like, oh, you're, you're out picking up chicks and, uh, like, working behind your wife's back. That's cool. We're all cool with that. We're men of the world. But then he comes down to, well, I'm very disappointed in you.
0: Yeah, it's that... I did not understand that friend's whole deal. Like, he, he goes from sort of, like, wink-nudging him to shaming him in, in a breath. I didn't understand that.
2: I kind of loved it because I the the shaming part feels very put on, like he's trying to play the like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're all men here kind of card. And then it feels like he drops that pretense and drops that persona and just says, you know, look, I'm disappointed. I don't think this, this is you. Uh, and it implies a whole world of of Alex's relationship and life with his wife who this friend clearly seems to know or have some investment in it implies you know his friendships with other people and how they work there's just like it hints at so much and it just baffles me it's like it feels like this movie could be a completely different film with more of that or without this but there's just the one scene you know it's it's a deliberate decision to have this one scene without laura and it tells us so much but it's it it blows my mind i it, it's hard for but, me but to it, get over
1: i mean isn't the main thing that it tells us is that this was not an arrangement for this is not like some common arrangement that alec is making with his friend like this is his little crib that he could kind of bring women back to like that is not that that's not the relationship that's not what is expected of of alec this is not like a this, you know, in terms of him being like a serial adulterer, I think that I think a scene like that kind of puts the uh, kibosh on that kind of thought thinking.
2: Oh, sure. But I've already backed off with yeah. that. Um, uh, let me,
1: <laughs> let me, I want to go back because ha- it's my favorite line in the film. And and this is something that, you know, when Alec is talking about his about wanting to be a doctor and, and, and the passion that he has for it, because there's a line where she says. You suddenly look much younger, almost like a little boy. I just like—I think that was such a beautiful—that moment is so beautiful to me. It's just like, uh, th- like, like her, her responding to his passion and his the, the way he talks about his job and what he what he cares about. I mean, there's there's something there. I mean, like that's a substantive thing. It's it, 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 and it's you know surely different than than Fred than this guy she knows at home who knows what kind of job he has, but it's probably quite dull. There's just something like her response to that. Uh, to to her uh, to kind of like be that kind of moved by his passion for that work I don't know I was very taken by it and very taken by that kind of by that line in particular
0: I think that scene also is necessary a little bit sort of on a plotting level because like that, the moment where Alec's friend comes home and, uh, Laura has to, to flee, like that is like the catalyst for the end of their relationship. Like it's after that that, you know, she, they, they decide that it has to end and, um, Alec, uh, decides to go to Africa. And I think without, him having that interaction with uh, his friend, and without him being shamed and sort of having the romantic blinders forcefully pulled off, the dissolution of their relationship would have felt more one-sided from Laura's side. Mm-hmm. Um so giving Alec this moment being shamed and being caught out and, you know, having what he's doing held up to him in an unflattering light and makes him, more receptive and understanding to Laura's argument that this can't continue.
2: There is yeah. al- also just the fact that we we see her play off with f- uh, friends of hers several times over the idea that Alec is just a friend. Maybe the family doctor, mm-hmm. definitely somebody her husband mm-hmm. knows and approves of, but when they're alone in that that flat and the friend comes in, Alec doesn't even for a second try to pretend that there's some you know, good reason that the two of them were together. And, you know, possibly she was just picking him up to go out for a tea or, you know, something acceptable. Like, he grabs her and hustles that her out of that back door, like, with a quickness. Mm-hmm. They both immediately know there's no way they're getting away with this. So uh-huh. it's possible that it was just brought to home to him how much he has to lose. But they, again, he's kind of a mystery to us.
1: Well, she, she's going to always have more to lose. I mean, that's another thing, too, about her um, true. her hesitancy is that is, is if you consider the time, it's it, it's going to be far more um, shameful and consequential for her than it is for him to have, have an affair, to be caught out by that's, people that you know, etc.
2: That's very true. And it kind of speaks to one of the things I wanted to dig into a little bit, which is there there are a lot of potential barriers to this relationship. You know, there's... His mysterious family and however he feels about them, there's her family not wanting to lose them, not wanting to lose her husband or disappoint her children, not wanting to leave her children. There's all of the societal stuff that she talks about and that almost seems more important to her. There's just the the basic logistics of the thing. But it's interesting to me that she talks over and over about, like, what will people say? What will people think? She never brings up her kids. And, like, losing Frank is clearly something that weighs on her in her mind and in her narration, but she never brings it up with with Alec. Like, a lot of what's going on here, I think, is sublimated in some interesting ways. And I'm curious whether you see the barriers here as, you know, more about, like, fear and anxiety in a way that would suggest – maybe we should be rooting for this uh, affair to happen or if it's more about like societal propriety or, you know, uh, about what she really wants uh, below the level of all this passion. Like, what do you think is the real barrier here among all of the many options?
1: I mean, I, I, I think for her, it's she loves her family. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard I mean, the, the notion of 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 breaking that that situation up is is I mean, it's on. Un- it's not something she's willing to do It it, it isn't about this even as much as she is like anyone completely thunderstruck by passion i mean it's like you know i mean she's she has that impulse she has the impulse to follow it as far as it will go but it doesn't go very far because because um you know it's just the the idea of destroying the life that she has um which is a good life is is just it's not in the cards for her
0: Yeah, I agree that she does have a genuine love and affection for her family. we do get some like domestic scenes that illustrate that the the first one where she comes home at the end of the relationship. Um, But, you know, and kind of uh, talks about what, you know, treat they're going to take their their kids on the, the next day. What what fun little adventure. And then there's that other scene Earlier in the timeline, but later in the film where she comes home after one, I think it might have be after the, the apartment incident, right? Uh, the, or the flat incident where uh, the, her son was clipped by a car. And he, he was fine, but it, it definitely came across as sort of a, a the punishment of, of fate, you know, for her actions. So I, I think we we get confirmation that she does care for her children and, and her family and that, you know, does weigh on her. We don't get a whole lot of it because this is like a less than 90 minute movie. And there's, you know, a, a lot of other stuff happening. But I, I think we're given enough information to believe that that is important to her. And then more broadly or, or generally, uh and kind of in line with what, what Scott was saying, like, her life is comfortable, you know, like the, this whole uh, affair is bordered by routine, like it's every Thursday, she does the same thing every Thursday, and this uh, affair happens within the confines of that routine that is afforded to her by this very comfortable life that, that she has. And pursuing the affair outside of this routine would mean like losing all the comforts that allow for it, you know? Um, and I think again, this plays into both the time and the social class that, that she's in, but blowing up her life in that way, which just feels like an impossibility with how we are, what we are shown of her life.
1: I think the affair or the uh, almost affair whatever this is, is really kind of an extension of the feeling that she normally gets from that day. You know, there's something, mm. I think there's something about going, about Thursdays, about being, going into the city, going to the pictures, you know, you know, being going, you know, I mean, there's, there's freedom there that, that, that is a freedom from, you know, a, probably a quite dull domestic life. And, um, you know, and this, this affair adds to that a little bit. It is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's one more thing. It's part of it. It's, it's, it's like a. It's like a multiplier of this of this day, but I think she craves that time. I mean this 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 time away. It's she needs it, and it's just, it just it ends up just kind of going too far.
2: I like that. It never really hadn't occurred to me the degree to which having an emotional affair that almost becomes a physical affair is just sort of an extension of her uh, shopping and <laughs> shopping
0: and movie One day. To
1: the movies. God, the movies are great. Why would you like <laughs> going to the movies? I, I know. Wonderful. I was.
0: I. I could have sworn you were going to make your your answer to Tasha's opening question about where you would uh, conduct an affair of the heart. The the cinema, Scott. it's right there.
1: The <laughs> only thing because the problem is, I think the only movie I can think of like that is like uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn, which is a very which is quite quite sad. Also, uh, uh, well, you know,
2: and, Scott Scott doesn't approve of people like talking or making out during the that's movies. That's true. Like I I that's can't true. believe that he loves this movie the way he does, considering they sit <laughs> in the movie and talk about Donald Duck. It,
0: it would it would happen in the lobby, you know, the, the oh, after, afterwards sure. at an appropriate time, and <laughs>
2: the the smell, of smell and then of the popcorn tension and would
0: happen in the dark, in, in quiet.
2: <laughs> it does feel like there's there's a little bit of magic to the movies where that that sequence where they're they're laughing uproariously over Donald Duck, which is hard for me to understand, but that's a whole other uh, thing about about Donald Duck. I guess it does feel like a rare place where they. can can fully express emotions without having to uh, like operate under this like decorous behavior class appropriate behavior where they're always very uh, very gentle and quiet and uh, may i please have a, a sugar for my tea kind of tone to almost everything they say in public like they can actually scream with laughter and it it feels like the closest they can come to just like fully expressing themselves while together in public
1: do you think I'm walking out of Flames of Passion was kind of a conscious of the king type of dealy, where they were just kind of sitting there, being I don't know, I don't know if I want to see a movie about Flames of Passion. This is uh, this is bringing this is bringing a lot of shame uh, to, to us uh, watching this particular film.
0: That's what I thought, but then like she basically just says like it was bad.
1: Yeah, yeah but, but, but they, but they uh, got a look though. She got a, they got a look from the from yeah. the uh, usherette.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, the Escheretta is a scott Tobias type who doesn't approve of people, you know, not respecting the, uh, the oh, sanctity the cinema. of cinema. Just right. walking out in the middle, like you're disturbing people. They're they're distracted. They're paying attention to you, like storming out. Yeah. I, not only does she say it's bad, uh, like I I don't I don't think that they were moved by or shamed by the film. Like we saw the trailer for it, it looked like a King Kong ripoff. It's even got yeah. a giant ape and a I screaming uh, a screaming lady being sacrificed to it. So. Well, there's a lot more to say, uh, honestly, about those, the background characters in the the tea room and about some of the big emotions on display here. And I want to dig into kind of the way a lot of this story is told through really small, specific quotidian details. But honestly, all of that rhymes so well with decision to leave that I kind of want to leave it for next time. Maybe kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on here is just how good this movie looks. You know, the Mm. the black and white is so sharp. The blacks are so deep. And uh, I I don't know how much of that you can credit to Lean, how much of it you can credit to uh, cinematographer Robert Krasker, who worked on Thief of Baghdad, which we just talked about, um, the 1941. He did a lot of Technicolor movies, um, Mm. but, you know, he also did films like The Third Man. So The Third
1: Man would be the pertinent one here, in my opinion, in terms of just giving you that. I mean, the atmosphere in both films is so similar, you know, and then both both kind of have a sort of a doomed romantic spirit. They're both in, you know, kind of black and white. They have kind of a, you know, sort of a foggy look to them sometimes, you know, um, you know, I guess sort of a more of a sort of a German expressionist quality. Though I guess that comes through a little bit more in Third Man than it does here. But atmosphere is a big part of what makes Brief Encounter the experience that it is. And I think it's important for these ty- types of movies to, to, to give you that ambiance. And, and uh, this movie has plenty of that.
2: Yeah. One of the things we didn't talk about with the uh, in terms of advantages of setting your doomed love affair mostly in and around a train station is constantly having billowing smoke. Like any yeah. time you need dramatic clouds of obscuring smoke or symbolic uh, misty smoke to hide what's going on around you or to disappear into, they're right there because of the the trains themselves. And there's a lot of that kind of thing in this movie, and it's it's very striking.
1: Everyone kind of associates David Lean with the big movies, you know, with the with your with the Lawrence of Arabias and Doctor Shavagos and Bridge on the River Kwai's, is, is. But he was also so good at at bringing, you know, quite a bit of style, to some, some of the smaller ones, to to this and to to summertime and uh, films like that. I mean, I I think this has got, you know, this isn't good, you know obviously this isn't scaled up like Lawrence of Arabia, but I think this is a real sophisticated piece of filmmaking for sure
0: and yes obviously the filmmaking is a, a big big part of that but also can we just take a moment to acknowledge uh celia johnson in particular uh, in her performance which mm-hmm. i i feel it carries this film and it is like with all that narration and that sort of like you know as you put it Tasha like quotidian detail <laughs> that uh, makes its way into it and you know sort of almost like diaryistic feeling of it like being able to like make that work in addition to the huge range of emotions she has to play as Laura like I think this is a high level of difficulty performance and she knocks it she, out of the park
1: she really does she's in crisis for so you know for such a long I mean the the emotions that she's feeling are are clashing all the time. when Once she realizes what's happening, when she really takes in what, what they're doing, how she's feeling, what they need to do in order to keep the, you know, the lies that she's not used to telling and that become, you know, easier, which is, which are, which is also hard for her, you know, and just, and is trying to figure out something that is unsolvable. She has to kind of live with multi with different feelings at once with with kind of conflicting desires and um yeah she 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 has to carry the carry the movie because she's the one who's telling us a story but i think it is yeah a truly wonderful performance
2: yeah, I I agree. I think that they both do a really excellent job here. I think she has a lot of emotion that she needs to sell. And he needs to come across as uh, charming enough to get over my personal uh, limitations <laughs> about a, a guy that keeps pushing women's boundaries when they say no, at not listening just, to them.
0: Just sticking his fingers in her eye without... <laughs> care in the world. I just
2: just not my favorite of of the many uh you know romantic romantic meat cutes out there is the one where the guy comes along and sticks a finger in a woman's eye when she keeps saying no don't do that. It's
1: a piece of piece of napkin or something
0: <laughs> hey, I mean Man. yes it is a piece of napkin but we yeah, are he uh, used a prophylactic yes oh my
2: goodness <laughs> Genevieve Kosky how how ashamed. Uh that would honestly be the best place to wrap but I just I need to note that this was the third in a batch of back-to-back uh, collaborations between David Lean and Noel Coward this was 1945 1944 was This Happy Breed and 1945 was "Blithe Spirit I haven't seen Blythe Spirit since college. I haven't seen This Happy Breed uh, ever. And now I feel like I'm missing out. I I feel like this is a trilogy that I need to catch up on if these movies are uh, available. But they certainly.
1: I'm in the same boat as you, Tasha, of of, uh, not having a very strong memory of Blythe Spirit and not having seen the other one.
2: Yeah, Blythe Spirit has a very strong rap as kind of a, really a classic. Does. Like not not yeah. a brief encounter level rap, but a strong one. I've never even heard of this happy breed. So, uh, I wonder if I wonder if that's trackable. Well, it's sort of something to think about yeah. in uh, kind of further investigating small-scale David Lean. So, you know, if you're a huge fan of This Happy Breed and you want to tell us uh, how it's much better than all of his other works, uh, feel free to, to contact us. Uh, and if you have other thoughts on just like how David Lean's Smaller scale earlier films fit together. We'd love to hear about that too. You're also welcome to talk to us about anything else in the world of film or about this discussion. Email us at comments at next if you want to share responses, or leave us a voicemail at seven seven three 234 9730 Oh, we'll be back in a minute with some feedback. <laughs> So now it's time for feedback. We have a late breaking letter here about Jordan Peele's Nope that asks a pretty small question that feels like a great springboard for a bigger topic. Uh, Scott, will you read this one for us?
1: Sure. This is uh, from from Matt uh, from an email with the subject line, Nope point that ruins the climax and no one is commenting on this. Uh, Matt writes, as a photographer, I saw this right away, but I'm so confused as to how this was ignored by all when the whole point of the climax is analog versus digital. The camera in the well is a fixed lens for sure, as it's meant to photograph people at a certain distance from the lens, and there's almost no way that the UFO would be sharp enough to make a gotcha moment as it's much further away. What's your take on this, and does it even matter when there's a bigger questions like that shoe balance? Uh, so, yeah.
2: I'm, I'm uh, gonna throw a couple of uh, things out here. One is okay. that if you're not a photographer, you may not know that, and at least in such a visceral way. And the other thing is that I just don't expect movies to be accurate, maybe about almost anything, a lot of the time. One of my favorite things in in writing about movies is people who interview, you know, interview an IT specialist about um, the net or interview a chef about uh, the bear on TV or, or whatever. Just like, how much does this reflect? What What's wrong with this and how much does it reflect accuracy? It doesn't necessarily impact how I feel about the the product. It's just sort of an interesting perspective. And I could see a photographer just like throwing up their hands in, in disgust at this point. But I'm not sure it lands as clearly for the rest of us. I don't know. I mean, did <laughs> no? It it didn't seem particularly likely that this uh, weird novelty camera, which has anybody ever seen a, a novelty camera? like this like fixed in the bottom of a well so you can take pictures of yourself looking down the well
0: i mean not that specific thing but it, it like it feels like a familiar theme park is it hand setup. Is, it, is it
1: a hand cranked camera i don't remember it's been a while since <laughs> nope it's funny that yeah. we're still reading uh, nope uh, uh e- e- you know emails Ooh. into october but like i feel like there's a point being made here about the fact that it is film rather than rather than digital like there's something about the legitimacy or something of of the image of the quality of the image that's going to be produced via film that's going to be persuasive in a way that wouldn't be on digital but maybe that's my that's maybe that's my film bias
0: i think during our conversation i made a, a point along the lines of like I I was dubious that that shot was as much of a gotcha moment as as it was, or or like, I I didn't think that it would actually like move the needle, I guess, as far as, as people believing and like that dubiousness was coming from a different place than that sort of more, more technical problem with it. My feeling was more just like, like what is that photo going to mean out of context, (laughs) you know, but like, I understand if you're coming to it with that sort of knowledge, like interpreting its uh, problem and through that lens, if you will.
2: <laughs> I know this is a whole nother discussion, but I, I will say I think a lot about films that end on what I personally think of as the last good moment. You know, the the moment that you can say this is a triumph Without considering, like, okay, at the the end of Speed, like, a month later, those two characters are not going to be together. This is not a lasting relationship. This is a high-test relationship of crisis. And we're going to end with them in a happy place because, like, watching the deterioration of their relationship and their parting six months later is not a happier and interesting story. Watching the next six months of these characters trying to convince people that, yes, they really saw a UFO and this is a real Mm -hmm. picture of it is not an interesting story. Like a lot of movies do this, like ending in the last plausible place that that you can kind of claim a triumph. So I'm with you on that. But what I wanted to ask is kind of a bigger follow up here is like we encounter stuff in movies all the time, where we either think that's ridiculous, because we have like personal, you know, uh, professional knowledge or hobbyist knowledge, or personal experience knowledge that Like Okay, that that makes no damn sense Uh, on a level of physics, on a level of science, on just a level of human behavior. And sometimes we let it go and sometimes it throws us completely out of the movie. Do either of you have any kind of like clear dividing line that you could point to uh, between, all right, that's silly, but I'll accept it for this movie and nope.
0: So the example that came to mind for me of like when I got kind of hung up on this sort of detail and it really bothered me in this case to the extent where I like immediately went home after the movie and wrote 1,500 words (laughs) on it, which is uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's uh, high heels in Jurassic Mm. World. But I think more broadly speaking, like a lot of times, like costuming details will uh, stick with me or or I'll get hung up on, on costuming details. And the reason I do is when they are like a missed opportunity to do something for the character or the story through costuming. And that was my issue with the high heels in Jurassic Park is that it just felt lazy and like a missed opportunity for a character moment where she chucks the heels or, you know, like it kind of sets aside the trappings of her, you know, buttoned up white besuited job, you know, and is uh, fighting for survival. We don't need to uh, revisit that argument again because the films themselves <laughs> revisited it in the sequels. Yeah. Um. But uh, in 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 cheeky manner. You haunted.
1: You haunted uh, that whole franchise. I,
0: <laughs> I wasn't the only one to bring it up for sure, uh, okay. but it, it but it was something that it, like uh, jumped thing. out at me immediately. And maybe it's actually maybe it's just footwear in general because I was also very hung up on the shoe in Nope. Uh, and probably would have been less so if it had been any shoe other than a Ked, which is just like the flimsiest little thing that would just fall over (laughs) like if it had been like a nice chunky chunky heel boot that landed that way like okay i could take that (laughs) oh
1: just let it well i mean no no shoes gonna behave that way um
0: (laughs) but i'm i'm being silly with the with the nope shoe but uh my my broader point is that uh these kind of you know details often jump out to me and costuming just because i think costuming is really important and it often gets overlooked like the power it can have in terms of characterization and sometimes even narrative and when that opportunity is like lazily skipped over it bothers me
1: i think that's a really good point and something i would probably say as well because if you're talking about my job or something i have some expertise on maybe you talk about movies to do with journalism and being in a newsroom and how that that operates and it, to me it's it, it it comes down to opportunities whether you want to play this broadly as if you don't really know in a whole lot of detail how such an operation works or you know on the other hand you really appreciate movies that 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 obviously have done the work and know that area well i think of think of a movie like shattered glass or something in the way that way the way the follow-up is done on on um Stephen glass's errors and the kind of accountability that he's being held to and the way reporters end up reporting out on their own reporter i mean like everything from everything about that process feels very thought through and authentic in a way that's quite gratifying and and, and i think you, you you love to see it when that happens because it's because it can be rare uh people tend to be you know overly broad when they're trying to uh uh, depict a certain you know profession because maybe they have other things in mind, other other for for what they want their movie to do. And so when it's when it's when when enough att- when attention is paid, it makes a big difference.
2: I mean, for me, it it makes a big difference what kind of story a movie is trying to tell, and like whether it takes anything seriously. I think a movie that takes the world and reality seriously up until the point. Basically, the, the equivalent of Roger, what Roger Ebert called the idiot plot. You know, if the only reason a character is doing a specific thing is because it's necessary to move the story forward and there's, there's no other justification, that's an idiot plot. If you're breaking the rules of, of science or physics or whatever because there's no other way to do the really dumb thing you want to do, that tends to stand out for me and bother me. But, for instance, in the, fa- the Fast and Furious movies where people are like flying through the air at a thousand miles an hour, crashing Mm. shoulder first into a windshield and then just getting up and walking away. Like (laughs) I'm way over questioning those movies. There's a point in Hobbs and Shaw that just sticks with me where one of the bad guys says, oh, I just went and hacked the mainframe of all of the major newspapers and and media outlets and inserted a story about how Hobbs and Shaw are evil and like cut to a montage of cable tv programs just saying uh this just in Hobbes and shaw are evil and it's like
1: oh god that stuff just it's yeah.
2: <laughs> it's so bad it's so egregious but these movies don't play take place in anything like reality and oh, anything it, it doesn't it, oh, any,
1: me. anything where it's like turn on the news and it's like it's just, <laughs> oh, that, that, or just like conveying information through news broadcast terrible and i and i like but i do like it when uh, you know if you think about those types of accent conventions i i one of my you know that wonder i think about that wonderful bit in the in the early in the other guys where you have the two the two badass hero cops who who jump off the building you know in in slow motion you just expect them to uh you know in any other movie they do this improbable dangerous ridiculous thing and and uh and and get away with it but you just splat on the ground that's they're too far up in the uh, the building and they both die i love that that that's uh that's a kind of a good calling attention to the to the uh false physics of the you know and and, uh punishment that uh, an actual human body would take uh, under circumstances like that
2: yeah, there's just there's so many ways in the which the movies deliberately get things wrong for shorthand purposes, like just about any movie that takes place in a courtroom, like actual courtrooms are very tedious and procedurally driven, and there's not a whole lot of like you're out of order. This whole system's out of order. Wait, now I'm going to bring in uh, evidence that I didn't tell you anything about in the form of a surprise witness who's going to scream a bunch of stuff that uh, nobody's heard before. And then the whole court case is just going to get thrown out in a very dramatic way. Like, that's not how the real world works. But, you know, with a lot of these stories, you just kind of accept this isn't reality. It's cinematic reality. It's just in cases where movies you know, do actually bring you in on something that does feel like reality and then veers in a sharp direction, that's that tends to be where I get thrown. So in a movie that's fundamentally about a giant flying alien that nobody seems to notice except a few people on this one farm that also magically turns off uh, all electronic devices so nobody can record it. I'm going to give them a pass on, like, the details of the focal points of cameras. I, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about this one particular detail, but I can see why Matt was. So we op- always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. Uh, to reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Decision to Leave, Park Chan-wook's police drama slash murder mystery slash thriller drama slash romance slash tragedy. It's a you-pick-your-poison buffet of genres, and we hope you'll enjoy digging into all those options as much as we did. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Show. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, come on. If you're out shopping and you see a friend of yours sitting with a handsome stranger with a look on their face like the world is about to end, read The Room. There'll be plenty of time to gossip and pry after the next train leaves.
0: Old old story not too long About a love that went all wrong The girl left the boy just as bad now she's gone she's so sad lover please please come back don't take a train coming down the track don't please don't don't leave me don't leave me in misery you would never hold me so near you would never call me dear don't you know
1: I'd die for you now you've gone that's what I'll do lover please please come back don't Take a train coming down the track. Please don't, don't, don't leave me. Don't leave me in misery